today's scripture comes from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee the, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Thank be to God. Thanks be to God. Can you join me in time of prayer once more? Oh God, we commit this time to you now to speak to us. Thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. At this time, would you pierce our hearts and help us be able to walk away being comforted by the beauty of the gospel. And if needed, would you also rebuke us and wake us up from our spiritual slumber. Thank you in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There is a song called Jonah Was a Prophet from VeggieTales. And the chorus of this song describes Jonah in the following manner. And I'm not going to sing it, although Shine uh, was encouraging me, honey, you should just sing this part. I was like, no, I'm just going to read it. Jonah was a prophet, uh uh-oh, but he really never got it, sad but true. And if you watch it, you can spot it, a doodly-doo, he did not get the point. Now, according to this song, Jonah was a prophet who really never got it. And according to this song, Jonah was a prophet who did not get the point. What is this song talking about? What is this song referring to? As we move along throughout this message, I want you to hold those questions uh, in your minds. Now, this morning, uh, we will be taking a closer look at the book of Jonah. Perhaps this is one of the books in the Bible that you tend to just glance over, uh, thinking that this book is just about how God saved Jonah uh, with this great fish. And if that is the case, you've been missing out big time. Even though this is a very short book, I do believe that it's filled with many profound gospel insights that we can take away. And as we delve into this uh, book together, it's my prayer and hope that that you will not only be able to see and understand what Jonah failed to see, and that you'll be deeply encouraged by the gospel. I'll be sharing three points, and they are number one, Jonah's Jonah's folly, uh, point number two, God's intervention, and point number three, God's compassion. Let's jump uh, into it right away, Jonah's folly. Verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. As you can see, Jonah was specifically chosen by God to be his instrument. Jonah was God's chosen messenger. And what God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh with a solemn message of impending doom and judgment in order to bring this great city to repentance, what does Jonah do? He decides not to obey God. And to make matters worse, he actually decides to run away from God. What is going on here? Verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to, uh, to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish to turn away from the presence of the Lord. See, Tarshish was the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. And here we see Jonah's folly. 
What is he doing here? He blatantly and deliberately disobeys God. It was an act of sinful rebellion against God. And the question is this, why? Why? Why does Jonah respond to God's call in this manner? Why is Jonah fleeing? Why is Jonah running away from the presence of the Lord? Please hold that thought as we delve delve deeper into this story. And here's the thing. When God sees Jonah running, God does something remarkable. He decides to go after Jonah. God pursues after Jonah instead of getting rid of him. See, God could have simply dismissed him and raised up another prophet and called him to do the exact same task. Another prophet who will remain obedient and faithful to him. But God doesn't do that, right? He doesn't get rid of him. He actually goes after Jonah, who is the runaway prophet. And this is how God responds when he sees Jonah running away, verses uh, 4 through 6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled a cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. This is how God responds as he pursues after Jonah. He sends a great storm, not to punish him, but to stop him. And here's the thing. In order to arouse and uh, and awaken Jonah spiritually, because right now he's running away from his presence and he's in active uh, rebellion, right? And in order to wake him up spiritually, he intentionally sends this great storm. And all of a sudden, the sailors and the Jonah, they find themselves in the midst of this terrifying storm and they're about to perish. So they're freaking out. They're panicking, and they're trying whatever it takes to save themselves, and they cry out to their false gods, but, but it doesn't do anything for them, right? So captain calls out Jonah, what are you doing here? Sleeping, get up, pray to your God, and maybe, maybe he will save us. But that's not enough, and nothing's being done. So what do they do? They decide to cast lots, and the lot eventually falls on Jonah. And they decide to ask him and probe him further to find out whether this is really Jonah's fault. Because they don't want to die if this is Jonah's fault, right? So verse 7 and onward, they say to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And, And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the man knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told him. Jonah eventually confesses to all of them, this great storm, guys, this is all my fault. It's because of me that this is happening because I'm actually running away from the presence of God, guys. I'm so sorry that I'm bringing this upon you. So what does he do? He just tells the sailors, just throw me off the boat, and perhaps the Lord will let this go, right? And here's the thing. 
because of Jonah, who decided to run away from God, who at this moment is in sinful and active rebellion against God. And because of that, the people around him are in grave danger. Now, what can we learn from this? In his commentary in the book of Jonah entitled Surprised by Grace, Tolian Tavishin writes the following words in order to warn us. Flight from God always leads downward. It culminates not in the, uh, the vivacious life we imagine, but in what amounts only to stagnant sleep. It's why so many people seem to exist without ever really living. In fact, they aren't really living. They're only going through the motion. Rarely, if ever, experiencing the internal shalom they were designed to enjoy from God because they're running from him. Running from God brings a cost not only to us, but also to those around us. We see how those who flee from God become increasingly thin and insubstantial and see through while those who pursue him become progressively more real and intense and solid. Those running from God become less human the farther they run. Those running toward him become more human the closer they get. The more human we are, the more we become what God wants us to become, the better it is for those around us. The less human we are, the worse it is for those around us. Running from God keeps you from breathing and living the life he intends you to live. You thereby rob other people of the blessing God intends to give them through you because you're less than you're meant to be. As Jonah's descending spiral vividly testifies. See, when we run from God, there will be spiritual ramifications. Unfortunately, it doesn't just stop there. Did you know that there will also be collateral damage? It will surely spill over into the people around you and jeopardize your relationships with them. Brothers and sisters, how are you guys doing spiritually? How is your walk with God? Is it personal? Is it intimate? Are you being tempted to run away from God? Have you been running away from the presence of God? If you keep running in the wrong direction, away from God, it will eventually cost you something. Husbands and wives, running away from the presence of God may cost your marriage. Fathers and mothers, running away from the presence of God may cost your family and your children might end up paying the price. And for those of you who are still single, you're not exempt from this. Think about the people that God has placed around you, the very people that you dearly love and care about. Running away from God might end up costing your relationships with them. See, the Bible describes a person who says there is no God as a fool. And you walk, when you walk out on God, you're acting foolish. And you walk, when you run away from God, you're acting foolish. The question that we all need to ask ourselves, honestly, is have we been acting foolish? See, don't let your folly be the cause of any unnecessary pain, brokenness, and suffering in the lives of the people around you. And that's a solemn warning from this passage. And also, don't rob the people around you of the blessing God intends to give them through you because you're acting 
faithfulness. And I do believe that this is a solemn warning for all of us. And I do believe that perhaps this is a wake-up call, a much-needed wake-up call for some of us today. Jump into our next point, God's intervention. Now, God eventually intervenes by sending a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And the question is, why? I mean, we know that God is not punishing Jonah through this storm and also through this fish. Here we see God intervening. This is God's divine intervention, right? But why is he doing that? Because he loves Jonah. And that is the very reason why he's going after Jonah, right? Verse 17 of chapter 1, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Here we see God's relentless pursuit after Jonah, who was foolish enough to think that he could actually run away from the presence of God. But here, Jonah is able to find out that it is impossible to outrun God and to hide from his presence. And that for the sake of Jonah, God intervenes by sending a great storm and a great fish. And here we see God outrunning Jonah with his mercy and grace and meeting him where he is in the very place of his sinful rebellion. See, although it appears that God is punishing Jonah with this great storm and also with this great fish, but that is not the case. Despite his sinful rebellion, and for which Jonah certainly deserved to be punished, God decides to intervene, and instead of punishing him, then there's a big difference. And truly, intervention makes a distinction between an intervention and a punishment in his rights, and this is very helpful. I quote, when we first read this part of the story, we typically assume the storm is Jonah's punishment from God for his disobedience. But the storm isn't punishment, it's an intervention brought on by God's affection rather than his anger. Interventions are for those who are in great trouble and don't realize it, for those who are self-destructing yet living in denial. Jonah doesn't recognize the great trouble he's in, but Jonah's greatest danger isn't physical but spiritual. He's not just running from God physically, he's fleeting spiritually. Would it have been better for Jonah if God left him alone? No. It would have been far worse. It was an act of mercy for God to send the storm. Jonah desperately needs an intervention. This storm was God sent to liberate Jonah from Jonah. See, as you can see, this great storm and this great fish was God's gracious and merciful intervention for Jonah. And why is that? And through this great storm, and also through this great fish, we're going to see God beginning the work of revealing the true condition of Jonah's heart. What was really going on inside Jonah's heart, which Jonah was so blinded to. And as a result, we're going to see Jonah getting exposed. But this is precisely what Jonah needs. And this is all God's part, part of God's gracious and merciful plan. Brothers and sisters, are you currently caught in a great storm in your life? How are you responding to that storm? Perhaps you're trying to run away from his presence in anger and frustration. Maybe even as you're facing this great storm, you're trying to put the pieces together and trying to find answers to the questions of why. I think we've all been there. Perhaps some of us are caught 
right at this moment in the midst of a great storm and you don't know what to do. And God seems so distant and silent. Julian Tavision offers the following words to help us see things from a different perspective. And I pray and hope that this will encourage you. Until we see God sends storms as interventions and not punishments, we will never get better. We'll only get bitter. Some difficult circumstances you're facing right now may well be a God-sent storm of mercy intended to be his intervention in your life. You're in danger, and either you don't realize it or you're living in denial. How are you responding? How are you responding? That great storm that you're currently facing right now could be the very best thing that you need right now. And that may be part of God's plan to love you even more deeply and to rescue you from yourself. See, after being woken up from his spiritual slumber and realizing the seriousness of what he has done, his disobedience and active sinful rebellion against God, Jonah eventually turns to God and desperately cries out to him, right, in the belly of the fish. And this is Jonah's prayer in in Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of the the Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. And you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your side, and yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I mean, doesn't it sound like a beautiful confession coming from a a heart that is filled with genuine repentance? I mean, at first, it does sound genuine, right? But But there are two kinds of repentance. One is contrition and the other one is attrition. And what is the difference? So contrition is a true repentance that is deeply moved by uh, who God is and what he has done for uh, sinners like you and me. And it involves not just turning away from disobedience, but also turning toward obedience. And it is driven by an external change, right? Internal change. And it comes out in an external form, right? And it's God-centered. Attrition, on the other hand, it's, it's a confession that is motivated by a fear of judgment, fear of punishment. You confess just to avoid harm and potential punishment. Jonah's confession was an attrition. It is driven by the fear of punishment. And how, this is how Jonah repented because he just wanted to get out of, from this fish. He wanted to avoid God's punishment and judgment. But even then, God still shows mercy and compassion. And as we move along and towards the other chapters, we're going to see why this specific prayer, although it looks genuine, that it wasn't really genuine. We're going to get to that. But even then, 
even though God sees what's really happening in Jonah's heart, God still continues to intervene, and he also even shows compassion to Jonah, the runaway prophet. Let's move to our last point, God's compassion. Now, after miraculously surviving this great storm and the great fish, Jonah gets a second chance. Second chance, right? He gets recommissioned to go to Nineveh to proclaim a message of judgment against this great city. Chapter 3, verse 1 and onward. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey to bread. Jonah began to go into the city, going on a day's journey, and he called out yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah gets another chance. And this is God extending mercy, grace, and compassion to him. He does not get rid of him. He does not dismiss him. Gives him another chance. He doesn't abandon Jonah, who is a runaway prophet. He gets recommissioned. Do you know why? Because God is not yet finished with Jonah, because God knows what's really happening inside his heart. He wanted to work powerfully, not just through Jonah, but also in Jonah. And this is the very reason why he gets recommissioned. Now, Nineveh, it was a wicked city. (laughs) It was a sin city. I mean, the Assyrians at that time had an infamous reputation. They were widely known for their violence, brutality, and arrogance. In his book, Mesopotamia, the Mighty Kings, Dale M. Brown claims that the Assyrians intentionally featured deliberate terror and atrocity as instruments of foreign policy. And this is what they were all about. The Assyrian kings often boasted about their brutalities and military victories, and they were written down so that people can read and hear about them and tremble. All the kings of Assyria were ruthless. They were the epitome of violence and brutality. Let me tell you a little bit about a king named, I'm going to butcher his name, Ashur Nasipal II. He's a king. uh, He reigned a century before Jonah's time. And during those days, he was the king of the world. He was the most powerful man uh, during his time, and he was a ruthless king. In his his inscriptions, and this is what he writes, and he was boasting about his military victory and his ruthlessness. I built a pillar over against the city gate, and I flayed all the chiefs who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound to stakes round the pillar. I cut the limbs of the officers who had rebelled. Many captives I burned with the fire. And many I took as living captives. For some I cut off their noses and their ears and their fingers, and many I put on their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads, and I bound their heads to tree trunks round round about the city. The young men and maidens I consumed with fire. The rest of their warriors I consumed with thirst in the desert of the Euphrates. See, this kind of treatment of defeated cities would become this king's trademark. So the people will know that, oh, he was here. This city has been conquered by this very king. And his 
policy, his legacy, continued to be followed by his successors in order to strike terror in the hearts of Assyria's neighbors. Ruthless kings, no mercy whatsoever. But now God recommissions Jonah to this city, to this wicked city, right? Now, what does this say about God's heart? Julian Tavision writes, quote, the very fact that Jonah was even sent to a such place reveals that God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. And I absolutely agree. The gospel reminds us about the depth of our Savior's love, and there's no situation and no uh, any single person that is hopeless and beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy, right? And notice how the people of Nineveh respond to Jonah's message. I mean, try to picture this. You see Jonah going into this great city filled with wicked people, filled with wicked king, and he goes, he's walking around the streets telling everyone, in 40 days, God's going to strike you guys. In 40 days, Nineveh will be no more. It's crazy, right? What is even more crazy is the fact that the people of Nineveh, they started repenting. As soon as they heard this message, chapter 3, verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. People start not only hearing the message, not only embracing it, they're turning away from their wickedness to God in full-blown, heartfelt, genuine repentance. And get this, notice how the king of Nineveh responds. Verses 6 through 9. The war reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published uh, through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mighty, mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I mean, isn't this truly remarkable? The Syrian kings, the kings that ruled over this great city, they were known for their brutality and violence and ruthlessness, no mercy. But all of a sudden, we see the king repenting turning away from his wicked way and turning to God, even issuing a proclamation throughout the entire city. Everyone fast, everyone start repenting or else we will perish. As a result, what happens? God does show compassion to this great city and the people of Nineveh, right? Chapter three, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Nineveh, it gets spared. God extends mercy to them. God extends compassion to them. But here is where it gets really interesting. And it's going to take an unexpected turn. And now we're in Jonah chapter 4 now. Notice how Jonah responds after witnessing 
this remarkable repentance coming from the king of Nineveh and then the people of Nineveh. Chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Huh, interesting. Here we see a prophet who's been commissioned to go to this great wicked city with a message of impending doom to turn people from their wicked way so that they may repent and call out to God. And this is exactly what happens, right? And this is Jonah's response. He gets angry. The question is why? Why is Jonah so, so angry? Turn to chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do, do, you do well to be angry? Do you know why Jonah is so angry? He's actually angry at God for showing compassion and mercy, grace and love to the people of Nineveh. He's angry at God for saving this wicked city. He wanted to see see, see, uh, this city burn to the grounds. He wanted to see God raining judgment on the people of Nineveh. Nineveh, and this is what he didn't get, and for that reason, he's angry. You know, Tim Keller once wrote, worry is not believing God will get it right. Bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. And here, Jonah's angry because he believes that God got this one wrong. And here, we finally get to see what has been really going on in Jonah's heart, what has been deeply hidden in his heart. And this will actually open your eyes to the fact that even that the prayer that he offered up from the belly of the fish wasn't really genuine repentance. And here's the thing. Jonah simply can't stand the people of Nineveh. He went out of obedience to God. And Jonah believes that the people of Nineveh deserve nothing but God's wrath. And Jonah is hoping that God will wipe out the city and that God will utterly annihilate the people of Nineveh. I mean, this is the reason why Jonah refused to go to Nineveh even in the first place because it's just the sheer thought of God extending his mercy and grace to these wicked people who simply do not deserve God's grace and love. I mean, that, even that thought of that made Jonah extremely angry. I don't ever want to see that happening. I don't even want to be part of that, right? So what does he tell God right now? I mean, he has the audacity to point fingers at God and say, God, you got this one wrong and, and I'm actually witnessing and just kill me now because I don't want to witness this any further. And notice what Jonah does after witnessing this repentance from this great city. Verse 5 of chapter 4, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there and sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Do you see what he is doing here? He went out of the city. Do you know why? I mean, he literally left them, right? Because he didn't want to be with them. 
he couldn't stand them. I mean, he couldn't stand them in the first place, but now Jonah sees the people of Nineveh receiving God's mercy and grace, and that pisses him off, and so he can't even be with them, and he doesn't want to witness any of that. So he decides not to remain in the city. But here's the thing. As a prophet, shouldn't he have stayed? The people of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, are turning from their wicked ways and turning to God, crying out to God for mercy, and God does show them compassion, right? I mean, as a prophet, shouldn't Jonah have stayed willingly behind to help them, to challenge the Ninevites to continue to walk with God, right? To share and to teach and to proclaim the word of God to them who now hunger and thirst after God so that they will be able to maintain a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with God, right? I mean, shouldn't Jonah have stayed behind to help them flourish spiritually so that the kingdom of God will continue to advance in the hearts of the people of Nineveh and in this great city? But he doesn't do that. He walks out on them. And in doing so, he's walking out on God again. As God's chosen messenger, Jonah should have been absolutely thrilled at the fact that a revival is taking place in this great city and the people are repenting, turning to God and believing in him after hearing his message. And as God's messenger, I mean, shouldn't Jonah be rejoicing that this is actually happening and that God decided to spare them by extending his love, grace, and mercy to this wicked city? I mean, Luke 15, 7 tells us, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, right? We're talking about more than 120,000 people, yet Jonah does not care. Jonah is not thrilled, nor is he filled with joy because of what is happening in this great city of Nineveh. He's still angry. He's angry at God. Because he believes God got this one wrong. When was the last time you felt like that? You couldn't understand some of the things that are happening in your life. And you try to make sense of it in faith. And you go to God in prayer. But you can't make sense of it. You try to put the pieces together, but you still can't see a clear picture. Initially, you're trusting in God. But eventually that trust fades away and you get frustrated. And that frustration turns to anger. And you keep pointing fingers at him, telling him, God, you got this one wrong. You got this one wrong, God. Fix it. Fix it. I don't disagree. I don't agree with what you are doing in my life right, right now. When was the last time you felt like that? See, Tim Keller I think it's absolutely on point when he writes, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. This is why Jonah, this is why God pursued after Jonah because God wanted to rescue Jonah from Jonah. Perhaps the storms that you are facing right now in your life could be God's loving intervention to rescue you from you, to rescue us from ourselves. Hopefully God will 
grant us faith and open the eyes of our hearts so that we would be able to not only see that but embrace it, trusting and believing that that's part of God's perfect plan for our lives. See, Jonah chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. Let's read it together. And here, Jonah shows more concern for a plant than the entire city of Nineveh, which is ridiculous, right? Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. When, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the, on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And when he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in, in a night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? See, God sent Jonah to Nineveh because he wanted to use Jonah and to work powerfully through him, right? And here we see God is still pursuing after Jonah. Why? Because he's not done with Jonah yet. He's going after his heart what's in his heart and he still wants to work powerfully in jonah and here we see god rescuing jonah from jonah right even now jonah still doesn't get it he's still missing the point right and when god asks jonah should i not pity nineveh what god is really asking is this jonah what makes you think that you're better than them Jonah, do you really believe that you're much more deserving of my mercy and grace than the people of Nineveh? Here God goes after the heart of the matter, right? The very thing that Jonah has been missing up until this point, right? I mean, brothers and sisters, isn't it so easy for us to sit here and just point fingers at Jonah for running away from God? And call him the runaway prophet. I mean, it's so easy to do that, right? But let's be honest. There is Jonah in all of us. We are the runaway bride, church. I mean, Apostle Paul describes about our relationship with Jesus Christ as, as of a spiritual marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, right? Yeah, it's easy for us to point fingers at Jonah for running away, but we also do a lot of running too. We always run from God. We are the runaway bride. The question that I have for you, brothers and sisters, is have you been running from God? Are you tempted to run from God because of what you are facing right now? Perhaps God is calling you to do something specific, but yet you don't want to do that, so you want to run away. Where is your Nineveh? What is your Nineveh? And what keeps you from running to God? What are those things? And did you know, all of us, every single one of us, including me, we all have our Ninevites. 
in our lives. And these are the very people that you tend to hate and avoid. These are the very people that you don't think deserve God's mercy and grace. These are the very people that you even think that they don't even deserve to hear the gospel. We all have our Ninevites. Who are your Ninevites? Something to think about, right? See, although we continue to run away from him just like Jonah did, God continues to pursue after sinners like you and you and me. And he will continue to outrun us with his mercy and grace. And God is not yet finished with us. But here's the promise of the gospel, right? As Philippians 1, 6 reminds us, the work that he began in our lives, he will finish at the day of Jesus Christ. And this is why he will continue to pursue after us even when we continue to run away from him. He will never, ever stop. See, the story of Jonah reminds us that sin runs deep, but grace runs deeper. Julian Tavision, to quote, because I do believe that he brings us all together and, and, and helps us understand and how Jonah, the book of Jonah is really tied to, to, to Christ and his redeeming work on our behalf. And this is what he writes. The incarnation of Christ tells us most emphatically how God spares nothing in going after those who run away. Jesus is really God's great wind, his mighty tempest in response to human running and rebellion. Jesus is the storm. Jesus is God's gracious intervention for those who are enslaved to themselves. He comes loudly, not subtly, with an aggressive affection to pursue fugitives like you and me. And this is what God is doing precisely in your life if you're facing a storm. And brothers and sisters, we will continue to face these storms. And it's not because God hates us and not because he's punishing us, but it's because he loves us. And despite our folly, our sinful rebellion, God will continue to remain faithful. Even when we continue to act foolish as if God is not around, God will continue to pursue us, uh, pursue us and he will continue to intervene to stop sin from running course in our own lives. And there are times God will show up as the calmer of the storms in our lives, but there are also times when God will show up and he will be that storm. And that is mercy and grace so that he can rescue us from us so that, he, so that we can truly turn to him and continue to run to him. And this is his way of loving us and removing, removing any obstacles that gets in the way of running to him and following him wholeheartedly. So instead of how are you responding? How are you responding? May God grant you faith to be able to see what you are seeing so that you can run to him all the more. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Thank you that you are a God who pursues after us. Thank you that you are a God who intervenes out of mercy and love. God, we just pray and ask that as we continue to, to face the storms of our lives, Lord, help us to, to be able to embrace them in faith, that they're, that they're not a form of punishment, Lord, but God, that, that you are pursuing after us. Father, Father, we are just like Jonah. 
we are the runaway bride. But thank you that you remain faithful and that you will never, ever abandon or forsake us. Pray that through the indwelling work of the Spirit, would you have mercy upon us and continue to enable and empower us so that we may continue to fix our eyes upon you and cling to you and continue to run to you as we run the, ra- run the race that is marked before us. God, we love you. Thank you for your mercy and grace in our lives. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.